A few days ago, I was walking my dog, and she's getting a lot of walks right now. And I saw this lady, who I assume is a mom, and this little boy behind her. They were walking um, in single file. He was about three or four feet behind her. And as she would walk along, she would drop these little plastic Easter eggs. He was carrying a blue bucket, and as he would follow her, he would stoop down and pick up those eggs one at a time as they walked along. And eventually, he filled up his bucket. She ran out of eggs. And he, he went up to her, and he gave her all the eggs back. And then the process started all over again. They just continued walking, and she dropped those same eggs, and he picked them all up again. But I, I couldn't help but see that he was delighted every time he would pick up an egg as if it were brand new even though uh, he had done this, uh, I watched him do it several times, and I thought, it's the same eggs. And it just made me think a little bit about um, how, as I move through my life, God has given me so many blessings. And the thing about those blessings is that oftentimes, they're the same blessings that I've had before, the same ones over and over again but they delight me every time as if it were brand new. Because I think there's something in our hearts that's pretty simple, and we just want the same things again and again. What happens oftentimes, though, is that we get used to those blessings, and instead of being excited and thrilled every time and appreciative of that, we just begin to expect them. We start taking them for granted, and then we only notice when they're not there instead of when they are. Our world has changed, and for many of us, we're wishing for some of those same blessings that only a few weeks ago just seemed like ordinary things. It was a mere six weeks ago that our global economy economy was just bursting with growth. And stocks were soaring. My 401k was doing really well. Our connected world felt invincible. Most folks were already making plans for graduation, spring break trips, or even putting their summer vacations on the calendar. Now, we just long for an ordinary day when we can go out of our house, when we can go to our favorite restaurant. Some of us, uh, I think on Sundays, have looked out the window and thought, yeah, you know, it's pretty cold or it's rainy today. It's so dreary. We're, we're just not going to go. We're not going to get out and go to church. And now we just miss so much being at church together, especially on an Easter Sunday like this. You know, uh, I think if the Last Supper were to happen now, if it were to occur in 2020, it might look, this week, a little bit like this. Despite all of our science, 
all of our technology, we can't seem to get past how profoundly fragile and vulnerable uh, life on this fallen planet really is. You know, as we're all discovering, I think with increasing humility, uh, our global economy, our supply chains, uh, all of that is so easily breakable. And we'd never even gave it thought before. Our relationships are fragile. Our political processes are fragile. The rapid spread of, of this virus around the world has disrupted even the world's most sophisticated medical systems. I happened to catch a news broadcast one night, and it was a doctor in Spain. He was actually the director of a hospital, and he just felt traumatized by these images that he would see every day again and again in the emergency care unit where he worked. And, and he made this comment that got my attention. He, he just confessed. He said, you know, we have sinned too much by being overconfident. Our bodies and even our life itself uh, it, it were deeply susceptible not only to death, but to the fear of death. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 10, says, you know, that this, this fear of death that causes us to feel like we are in a lifelong bondage. We're in a slavery to that, just being afraid of dying. And we see that being played out on a world stage right now. People are traumatized. People are so frightened of either getting this disease and getting sick or dying from that. We still fear death. Now, aren't you glad that this Easter Sunday we get to preach, even if it's <laughs> a, an online stream sermon, what John Stott called the up-to-the-minute relevance of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection somehow just resonates with our human condition. and It speaks to our needs as no other event in history ever has or ever could. The resurrection is relevant. We don't have to try to make it so. It just already is. All we need to do is just declare it to celebrate it and to apply it into our lives with, with joy, with confidence, with enthusiasm. Paul said in Philippians that when we come to the place where we stop relying on our homemade religions and all of our best self-righteousness, we come to the end of that that God is ready to share with us the same power and the life of the resurrection that was in Jesus. That's for you and that's for me. Because resurrection is, is not just an idea, a, a concept, or, or a doctrine. No, it is the power of Jesus. It's what ushers us in, you know, this broken and wounded people of humanity into what Romans 6, 3 says is the newness of life. The newness of life. Resurrection is not a, a mere creed that we repeat anymore. It is living. It has a name. It has a face. 
And that is the face of Jesus. He himself is the presence of this divine life that's in us, that's in us now. Folks, I love worshiping with you. And I miss you being in this room. And I hope soon that we're all back together. But I want you to know this. God did not send his own son, his precious son, to die on the cross just so that we could go to church. Jesus didn't come just to improve your spiritual condition, to give you a better religious system, to make you another version of yourself that maybe has been tweaked and is a little better. No. Jesus came so that we could be reborn, so that we could have new life in him. You know, Jesus tried to explain that. He lived it. (laughs) And told people about this new life again and again and again and again. And it seems like that sometimes it was the most religious, pious, church-going folk who couldn't get it, who had the hardest time understanding Jesus. I think it's the same way today. You know, one example is a man named Nicodemus. And for whatever reason, my thoughts have been about him the last couple of weeks. Uh, I saw a scene in in a series that we've been watching uh, called The Chosen. And it portrayed Nicodemus a little differently than maybe we thought. So uh, he's been on my mind. And he's, he's mentioned several times in Scripture. He's mentioned three times, actually, in the Gospel of John. He doesn't show up in any of the other Gospels. Now, the first time that he's mentioned is a familiar passage, and it has within it what is the most famous Bible verse ever written. I want to read this for you. This is in the third chapter of John. I'm going to read the first three verses, and then I'm going to jump ahead to the 16th verse. It says this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How do you do that? You know, this was a puzzle to him. And in verse 10, uh, Jesus even acts somewhat surprised by Nicodemus asking the questions that he did and the conversation that's about to unfold. Because Nicodemus is a teacher of Scripture in Israel. But he doesn't understand the concept of spiritual rebirth. People aren't always open. They're not always ready to grasp salvation by grace and grace alone. We always have this tendency to want to add something to it and to make it better, especially by our own efforts. It's just not the way it works. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a a member of the Jewish ruling council. 
Now, to put it in a modern-day context, there's not an exact equivalent, but it would kind of be like if you were a congressman and you were a seminary professor with a Ph.D. in religion all at the same time. Not only that, but the Jewish Talmud says that he was the third wealthiest Jew in the entire city of Jerusalem. So Nicodemus was a big deal. (laughs) The thing is, that doesn't matter. None of that has anything to do with being born again in our spirits. It doesn't matter about your past, what your history is. If you grew up in church and you know all of these uh, phrases and words and verses because you've got them memorized, or maybe you're so disconnected and this is all new to you, it doesn't matter. Jesus died for you. He rose again for you. And the life that he has for us is in him. And it's just by grace. I've wondered sometimes... Whatever happened to Nicodemus? The scriptures trail off and we never really know. There are some legends and there are some stories, but we're not sure. I believe that he became a follower of Jesus. And there's some clues in the other two passages that I mentioned a moment ago. He's cited, for instance, in John 7 as defending Jesus in front of his own peers who were the other rulers, uh, the other Pharisees. And Nicodemus steps back to the law to use that on behalf of Jesus. And then there's one more time that Nicodemus is mentioned. It's in John chapter 19. And I'd like to read for you just a portion of that scripture because I think it's significant, and I think it gives us a hint at the direction Nicodemus' life was moving now. This happened after the crucifixion. It's in John 19, and I'm going to read from the 38th verse. It says, After these things, and that's the death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away the body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths and spices. And as the burial custom of the day, they began this process Um, tending to and caring for Jesus' body. And I've tried to picture that in my imagination because here are these two men alone uh, in in the silence and the quietness of this tomb. And maybe they had this whispered conversation that went on for an hour or two hours together. These new believers who had put so much hope in Jesus and in his teaching. Now, the scripture says that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. That's a lot. That would have been much more than was needed or even typical for a funeral of that day. And it would have been very expensive. This is how much would have been used only for a royal burial. And I noticed that. Because this is something that only a king would have received. That's what they did for Jesus. You know, really, it doesn't matter 
about the way they prepared his body. It doesn't matter about the tomb because it was all so very temporary. In three days, in three days, he would rise again. Jesus opened the way for us to follow, to give us fresh life and freedom from sin and death, which is our ultimate enemy. You know, there are so many ways that God has blessed me over and over again, but there is no greater blessing that I have than God's Spirit in me and with me rebuilding and renewing himself in me day by day by day in my life. It's the most precious, beautiful thing he's ever done for me. Like that little boy with the blue bucket, following his mom and giving everything back to her that he had been given and then doing it all over again, because of the cross, because of today, because of the resurrection, we now live in this back and forth grace relationship with God. And he continues to give and to bless us. I have a friend, his name's J.O. J.O., I hope you're listening. J.O. has almost been here for a hundred years. And he likes to say this, folks, we'll never outgive God. <laughs>